Hi, this is Brian Coleman, the game designer who helped create games like Rampage and Arch Rivals and Xenophobe and Pigskin and many other early, what are sometimes called classic games. And you are listening to Atari Bytes. Welcome to Atari Bytes, the show where we take a bite out of the story within a classic Atari 2600 game, and occasionally a 7800 game, and see if that story bites us back. My name is Bill, this is episode 161. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everybody. Hope all is well with you, because here in Podcast Central, it's Germany germ 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 chaos. Um, I'm recording on a Sunday much later in the day than I would normally like to do so, because Friday night, I had one kid go to convenient care, get diagnosed with a cold. Saturday, the other kid went to convenient care, got dis- and in a, an apparent effort to one-up his sister, got diagnosed with influenza A. That's right, he skipped right over B and C, went right to A. Now he has to wear a mask, he got drugs... The rest of the family got prescribed drugs as a preventative. Uh, it was germ chaos around here yesterday. And now today, this morning, he woke up with a huge spike in his fever. So we spent roughly eight days at the emergency room this morning. Okay, it was actually five hours, but it might as well have been eight days. Because all I really said was, yeah, it's not unusual. Uh, lots of fluids. Take your drugs. Get lots of rest. So that's what we're doing. Uh, the rest of the family is relatively healthy. I have a bit of a cold now. I don't think I have influenza A. I can pretty much assure you you won't catch it by listening to the podcast. But if you want to send me uh, mint chocolate chip ice cream as a uh, you know as comfort food, I'm not going to argue. I will try not to cough in your ear, and I will try not to pass out with a fever or anything while I'm recording. All right, well, let's get through it before, uh, you know, someone else breaks out in some sort of illness in my house. What should we do first? Oh, let's see how healthy Mad Mike is this week. Gonna prove that the world is flat in his rocket ship, or else he'll go splat. He's Mad Mike Hughes. Mad Mike Hughes. Well, Mad Mike's... Period of seclusion continues. Nothing new on Facebook for Mr. Mike. Um, I'll do a quick Google search. Nope, nothing new there either that I can see. Um, what's going on here? MadMikeHughes.com. Doesn't look like any updates there. Um, oh, you know what? Today, according to his website, today, February 16th, as I record this, Mad Mike Hughes hosting Flat Earth Expo in Las Vegas. And Mike Hughes will host the 2019 Flat Earth Expo, parentheses, Exit the Matrix, close parentheses, in Las Vegas. Watch the Rocket Man trailer below and consider visiting and supporting Mike's Patreon page. Tickets for the event taking place on the 25th of May, available here. What event? Alright, I will click on that. Okay, so maybe that thing... Wait, tickets just go on sale today? Is that what's going on? Because this thing says the Flat Earth Exit the Matrix Expo is actually May 25th and 26th in Vegas, hosted by Mad Mike. Featuring speakers on a variety of full red pill topics, including Flat Earth. A plan to prove Earth flat or round will be presented to an international audience. The list of topics to be presented includes Flat Earth and other controversial subjects. Full list of speakers yet to be determined. Tickets, 20 bucks apparently. A bargain at twice the price, if you ask me. Okay, so the post is just from today. The event was not today. Uh, so, yeah, go to madmikehughes.com for a link to buy tickets to the Flat Earth Expo. As always, if by chance any of you is going to the Flat Earth Expo, please let me know exactly what happens there. Well, that's some pretty exciting news. Still nothing, of course, about 
an actual rocket launch, but there is a Rocket Man coloring book. A oh wait, I may be uh, I may be wrong here. Hmm, that's interesting. There was a link on the website MadMikeHughes.com that said dated February 10th update on rocket launch, but when you click on it, it just takes you to a page where you can buy stuff. Hmm. Well, that's all lovely. Uh, so nothing new there, I guess. All right, let's close up the Mad Mike Hughes mailbag. Gonna prove that the world is flat in his rocket ship, or else he'll go splat. He's Mad Mike Hughes. Mad Mike Hughes. Got some feedback this week. Friend of the show, Sean. Hi, Sean. Emailed us. Recently, uh, the subject line of the email was Clarifications and Love Songs, which I think is a delightful title for an email. I am looking... Where's the email? There it is. Actually, to be clear, the, the uh, subject line was Clarifications and Love Songs, 1971 to 1986. Sean writes, Hey there, Bill. As usual, I, hi- as usual, I highly enjoyed the most recent Atari Bytes. Parentheses, or by the time you're reading this, most likely the second most recent Atari Bytes, close parentheses. Yeah, he's caught on to the, the clarification that I've made at times that says, uh, honestly, the way I have my production schedule set up, and it's probably not the best way to do it, but it's the way I've always done it, and it seems to work with all the other chaos in my life. Um, you hear an episode every Sunday. That same day, typically, I'm recording the next week's episode. So, just because that works better for me to record on Sundays, and at some point I decided it was a good idea to release on Sundays as well. The downside of that is, even though I like getting input from you guys, and, you know, keep it coming, I can't promise that it's going to be in the next week's episode that you hear. Um, I apologize for that. Uh, it's just kind of the way things happen. Uh, so Sean's kind of caught on to that. So uh, let's go on. I thought I'd offer up some clarification. First off, Crazy Kong is kind of a gray market, semi-unauthorized ripoff of Donkey Kong. Alright, so let's review. What was I talking about two episodes ago? That was uh, episode 158, Pressure Cooker. There was some reference in some of the material I was talking about in the background of the game, where I was expressing some confusion about Crazy Kong. That's what Sean's addressing here. Crazy Kong is kind of a gray market, semi-unauthorized ripoff of Donkey Kong, which I kind of suspected. Uh, It looks identical to Donkey Kong and plays virtually the same, but the colors and sounds are kind of weird. I think Nintendo actually licensed Donkey Kong for the people who made Crazy Kong, specifically for overseas markets. Interesting. So does that mean these guys ripped off Donkey Kong, and then Nintendo said, yeah, you ripped us off, but it's actually pretty good. Can we use that as our overseas? Can we license this for overseas? Or does it mean that uh, the guys who made Crazy Kong worked with Nintendo to do it, so it wasn't actually a, you know, an infringement. I don't know. Sean says, I don't believe it was ever officially released in the United States, but I seem to remember the Kroger store where I saw the game didn't usually have the most, well, official arcade cabinets. I'm picturing Sean here with air quotes. I'm pretty sure the Pac-Man they eventually had was a counterfeit, given that it was in a plain black cabinet, had a generic control panel, and had a marquee that was basically hand-drawn. Ew. Part of the fun, of course, of playing arcade games was the, the cool cabinets. So, aesthetically, that would not be pleasing. Sean writes, Also, some clarification on Pie Factory's mentions of Galloping Ghost Arcade and Twin Galaxies. Notice I said the next time you're in the Chicago area. I didn't specifically call out Chicago. Truth is, here in the city, we don't have any real standalone arcades outside the Dave & Buster's kind of thing. All the places to play good arcade games are you are actually beercades, including one that's literally four blocks from my apartment, and I visited only once in the three years it's been there. No reason, just lazy. All the standalone arcades are in the suburbs. Pixel Blast in Lyle, Underground Retrocade in West Dundee, Price Arcades in Bolingbrook, Galloping Ghost, however, sorry, Galloping Ghost, however, Brookfield, and very close to Brookfield Zoo. Same exit on Interstate 55, actually. Yeah, I think I was, in my rambling discussion of, of things I don't know a whole lot about. Uh, I called out Galloping Ghost. Uh, I think I I think I started to say it was in Chicago. I think I caught myself later. I, I think I said it in the episode that, no, I know it's actually in, Bro- in uh, Brookfield. 
and uh, I, I've tried to get my family to go there. We haven't been to Brookfield for a long time, but when the kids were younger, we used to go there quite a bit, at least once or twice a year to take the kids to the zoo. And I knew Galloping Ghost was around there somewhere, but I, I could never get the family to go. So maybe we'll make a trip over there sometime since the kids have kind of kind of sort of moved on uh, from the zoo thing. Um, you know, maybe we'll make a trip over for Galloping Ghost. I did, however, in the episode misspeak and, and talked about uh, Twin Galaxies in the context of being an arcade. Sean is calling me out on that. And he writes, Twin Galaxy is not an arcade anymore, but a video game scoreboard. Arcade games, console games, handheld games, smartphone, tablet, video games, PC games, etc. It's kind of sort of the de facto scoreboard for World Records. Although in recent years, there's been a log of a log of mudslinging in Twin Galaxy's general direction for various reasons. Some people don't like it because of the adjudication policies. Some people have personal vendettas against the owner. Some are mortal enemies with some folks in the Twin Galaxies community. Many with good reasons, many without, etc. Personally, I use it as scoreboard, nothing else. I don't get involved with the forums or community, but note that I said Twin Galaxy is, isn't an arcade anymore. It started out during the golden age of video games in the early 80s as a small arcade in Tumwa, Iowa, owned and managed by Walter Day, who I got to meet last year, actually, at uh, Minos Gaming. Tumwa is a stone's throw from Fairfield, uh, home of the Maharishi Business Institute, uh, which I knew because I lived in a Tumwa for a while, although Twin Galaxies wasn't a thing anymore when I lived there. Walter, apparently, Walter Day is a devoted follower of Maharishi uh, Mahesh Yogi and Transcendental Meditation. If Sean says I remember my gaming history correctly, and chances are I do not, one day someone scored like a jillion points on Defender at Twin Galaxies and asked Walter if he knew if that was the highest score anybody ever got on the game. Walter didn't know, so he called Williams, the making of, uh, major of Defender, and well, it turns out that Williams didn't know either, as they didn't keep records. So Walter took it upon himself to start the Twin Galaxies International Scoreboard where he'd keep track of arcade games world records. Back then, though, many of the recorded scores weren't witnessed, which is why you might find some magazine articles from back then citing Pac-Man scores in the 6 million neighborhood, which was impossible due to the infamous kill screen that wouldn't let you get higher than about 3.3-ish million. You don't have to tell me, Sean. I routinely get in the double millions. That doesn't even make sense. So then Sean says, uh, oh, hold on. Uh, yeah, the Twin Galaxies thing, I do kind of know that. I did uh, incorrectly refer to it as a, a going arcade in the episode, so thanks for correcting me on that. Um, but but I do understand uh, it's sort of its capacity now. I've never, I don't really follow score stuff. I don't worry about trying to set records. I don't follow the records. I don't do any of that. But I, it is interesting to hear about. I did enjoy meeting Walter Day last year. At the uh, at Midwest Gaming, which is coming up now here in a couple of months as I'm recording this, so who knows who I'll get to meet this year. Regarding ET, which I also talked about, um, let's, why did I talk about that? Oh yeah, um, Dave, or maybe it was Greg. Sorry, Dave and Greg, if you're listening, I can't remember which one of you it was, uh, but it was one of you from uh, Champion Klein, the Night Rider years, left a voicemail. Uh, which you guys can do, by the way, by calling 563-265-1978 and ask the question, would an appearance by the E.T. video game on the Knight Rider TV show in the early 80s have saved, uh, have avoided, helped help prevent the gaming crash that occurred in 83? I said, no, I don't really think so. And Sean agrees with me. He says, I totally agree with you, by the way, that E.T. did not cause the video game crash. In fact, I'm going to go so far as to say that it had zero effect on the crash. I was a massive Atari 2600 fan back then, and I never once heard boo about E.T. Heard plenty of Pac-Man hate, but not E.T. Regardless, both titles sold in the millions, so they were not a commercial flop. And of course, the documentary Atari Game Over kind of only half-proved the whole they buried all the, ET in, all the E.T.'s in a landfill story, as it turned out that the landfill contained a lot of various Atari overstock, including plenty of commercially and critically successful 2600 games such as Galaxian and Centipede. Sure, there were some E.T. cards buried there, but there were a lot of other titles as well. Saying that E.T. caused the crash is like saying Yoko Ono broke up the Beatles, who for a short time were also followers of the Maharishi. It's simply scapegoating and just plain not true at all. Hmm. All things connect to the Maharishi, I guess. Interesting. I think we may be stumbling upon you know, a universal theory of everything with this uh, humble little email on this uh, dopey podcast. You're here to witness it. The moment when all of the universe aligns. You're welcome. 
Sean concludes by saying thank you as always for soothing my Monday morning commutes with an enjoyable podcast. Give Bug a scritch on the head for me. And that same episode that Sean's writing about, uh, Bug was my uh, co-host. So Bug says thanks. All right. Well, thanks, Sean. I think I've kind of responded to each point as I've been reading. Thanks for correcting me as always. I like to be corrected. I've been doing the show for a few years, but I, I'm not, uh, I don't have the history with these games. Other than having been a casual player of them when I was a kid, I don't, I don't know all the history. So when I screw something up, please, uh, please let me know that. I will save my crying for off air. Um, what else? Oh, speaking of the Night Rider years, the same day this episode drops that you're listening to right now, after you're done listening to it, you can go check out Champion Klein, the Night Rider years, and hear me again. I recorded an appearance on that podcast talking about the season two, uh, two-parter, season opener of Night Rider. For the like two of you listening who don't know what Night Rider is, it was an early '80s action show starring David Hasselhoff as Michael Knight, who drives around in a talking car that can drive itself, and they fight crime. It's not clear if they're supposed to be like secret agents or uh, cops or vigilantes or, or exactly what they are, but that's what they do. And every week on Champion Klein, uh, the guys do an episode uh, review, and they were nice enough to invite me to be on the show for, like I said, the uh, episode that kicks off season two of Knight Rider. It was a lot of fun talking to them. I hope to do it again. Maybe they'll come on the show sometime and, and give us a Knight Rider story. Sorry. Well, that'd be okay too. But actually I was going to say an Atari game story. And uh, and that'd be great. And You know what? I, I'm actually lying about a lot of this. Uh, I am on their show, but as I'm recording this show, I haven't actually recorded anything with them. Um, I'm scheduled to do that later this week. But I am assuming that it was a fun time. It may have been a horrible, wretched, nightmarish experience. Um, I, they may have hypnotized and brainwashed me, and, and now I've embarked on a life of crime. I, I may think I'm uh, an ottoman or some sort of tree. I don't know exactly, but I'm assuming uh, that what happened was I appeared on their show. We talked about Knight Rider. I uh, had some laughs. Uh, I got to plug this show, and it's a podcast, Charlie Brown, and then uh, we turned off the uh, recording equipment and went on our ways. Um, and you can hear that episode, I think. Um, I'm not sure what number of episode it is for them. I think it might be episode 23? Yeah, I think it'd be episode 23. Episode 22 was the recap of season 1. So yeah, episode 23 would be Season 2, Episodes 1 and 2. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to recording it. They're fun. They're witty. Uh, they have good observations about the, the, about the show, Knight Rider. And they clearly are fans of early, uh, of 1980s television. If you're a fan of 1980s television, go listen to that show. Go listen to their other podcast, which is where I first heard them, called Mullets and Memories, uh, MacGyver podcast, where they did the same thing, right? They went... Episode by episode through MacGyver. It was a lot of fun, too. So, yeah. So, that's my excitement this week. If I don't die of some sort of weird illness first. I don't know if the microphone's picking this up or not, but you may be hearing in the background the sounds of the house being disinfected. Uh, I apologize for that, but it is kind of important that, you know, like I said, that we not die of germs. So, apologies. All right. Well, why don't we get on with this week's game? What? What's that I hear? Could it be... That's right. We're jumping into the time vortex, jumping forward in Atari time to play an Atari 7800 game called Xenophobe from Bally Midway 1987, the arcade game, ported to the Atari, among others, in 1988. This was a go-to game for me. I lived in northern Iowa as a kid. You know, I didn't live in a rural area necessarily, but it was not a huge major city either. Well, it was the biggest city uh, in that part of the state, but we didn't necessarily have an arcade. We had, like, you know, the Pete's Place had a few video games. 
I had made regular trips with the family to see my brother in Minnesota, and we would go to Showbiz Pizza, and, and I'd get my arcade fix there. I think when I was a teenager, eventually we did get, like, um, Aladdin's Castle at the mall. But for a while, it doesn't feel like it was very long. Maybe a year? Maybe not even that long. We had a legit, not a Aladdin's Castle kind of thing, but a legit local arcade called the Gas Stop. And it was an old gas station, hence the name, that somebody had turned into an arcade. Sort of. I think, as I remember, you go in like the main floor of what would be like the convenience store, and there'd be a dude sitting there and a change machine. And you put in your buck and you got tokens. I think it was like 10 tokens for a dollar or something. And then you go downstairs, as I recall, and there was a room full of arcade games. Hi, Bug. You probably heard Bug jingling. Anyway, what was I talking about? Oh, so we'd go to the GameStop, me and a couple of friends, and we'd play this room full of games. And one of them that we always played was Xenophobe. One of the big appeals, of course, of Xenophobe in the arcade was you could play three people at a time. And there were usually three of us there, so nobody had to wait. And it was great. The level of detail was great. The action was great. The look of it was great. I just, it was my go-to. So then, I never had it, well, I never had a 7800 as a kid, so I never played it uh, on, you know, at home on, on any Atari system. When I got my Nintendo, my NES, I had Xenophobe for that. And it was okay, as I recall. I was disappointed because it wasn't the arcade version, of course. Um, and I haven't played that in decades. My parents, somewhere along the way, gave the NES away. I still can't believe they did that, but they did. So I lost it somewhere along the way. So when I got the 7800, I was excited to get Xenophobe. And uh, now I have it. So in a minute, I'll tell you what I thought of it. I think last week I might have declared Codebreaker had the longest manual of any game that we played on this podcast. I think Xenophobe might have them beat. So we'll just kind of go through the basics. Alien Attack. Looking at the manual here. Hostile aliens, xenophobes, are infesting space stations vital to your planet's security. These aliens threaten to overrun the stations, rendering the space stations useless. You are part of an elite team who is ready to speed to these endangered space stations. Your mission is clear. Destroy the aliens, regain control of the space stations, and pick up any valuable hardware you might discover as you sweep the stations for aliens. The aliens are swarming bands of uglies straight out of your worst nightmare. You'll need to use talent just to stay alive as you rid each space station of these pests. You don't want to let them catch you. It's them or you. The message has come. It's up to you and your teammates to cleanse each space station of aliens. Your mothership brings you to the vicinity of each overrun space station. You then enter the space station via a transfer disc, which is totally not the same thing as transporting like on Star Trek. Team up with another member of your elite squad or work on your own to clear the aliens from an infested space station. Just be careful as you enter a space station. The aliens are everywhere. You can play this with one or two players, so you're pretty limited to, you're, you are limited to two people. A second player may join the game at any time. Press the fire button on the other controller. In a multiplayer game, players may join, against, join forces against the aliens. Since each player is independent, the death of one player does not affect gameplay for the other player. An awards ceremony occurs after a game ends. During the cer- ceremony, the aliens you destroyed and valuable hardware you retrieved are shown along with the point values. Xenophobe's split screen lets two players move independently. You view each player's game action in a separate half of the screen. The left controller corresponds to the top screen view, while the right controller corresponds to the bottom. The size of a player's viewing screen is the same whether you are playing a one-player or two-player game. There's a diagram here in co- showing your controller movement. Can everyone see in the back? Okay. Basically, you can walk, you can jump, you can crouch, you can toss grenades while you're crouching. I do move to the right, to the left, go up and down in an elevator. Uh, you shoot with the left fire button. The tossing the grenade when crouched thing, you use the right fire, fire button for that. If you're standing and you push up, you can jump. The game begins when leaving the mothership for, any, uh, for one of the nine alien-infested space stations. Each base has a different number of levels as follows. Space Station 1 and 9 has one level. 2 has 2, 3 has 3, 4 has 4 levels. 5 has 3, 6 has 2, 7 has 3, 8 has 5. I don't know why they're so different, but they are. Each space station has 8 rooms on each level. 
You must open doors as you move from room to room. To do that, you just step up to the door. Or if you're me, you run into it. To reach a different level, use the elevator found on each level. While staying directly in front of the elevator buttons, push up on the controller, the elevator door opens, and you can enter. There are no stairs between levels. There are three ways that you can finish a mission. Each of the three mission endings offers an increasing number of points. If you take too long in clearing a space station, the aliens overrun the station. The amount of time you have to clear a space station depends upon the difficulty level and other factors. If you wait too long, the screen flashes red, and you are automatically transported back to the mothership as the aliens overrun the space station and the station explodes. Destroying some aliens by finding and using the self-destruct code to destruct the space station is an acceptable ending. You earn 100 bonus points for each alien you destroy at that space station. Then it's back to the mothership and on to the next infested space station. The best ending for a mission is the destruction of all aliens on a space station without destroying the space station. You receive a 300-point bonus for each alien you destroyed as the sta- at the station and a 200-point health bonus. Then you return to the mothership and prepare to board the next infested space station. first objective is to destroy all aliens within the allotted time. Using the minimum amount of force to destroy a particular type of alien, the alien lives. Uh, unless you use the minimum amount of force to destroy a particular type of alien, the alien lives and continues to threaten you and your mission. The minimum amount of force needed to destroy a particular type of alien is as follows. It range from, ranges from 1 unit of force for a critter to 15 units, sorry, 16 units of force for a snot pillar, snotter pillar. There are also pods and tentacles and roller babies. Pick up any valuable hardware you find strewn around the station as you are sweeping for aliens. You can gain extra points or restore lost health points with what you find. Begin play with a phaser, not like a Star Trek phaser. In addition to hardware, you will also find weapons scattered throughout the space station. Pick up these weapons for extra points, then use the weapons to destroy aliens. But remember, you can only have one weapon at a time. Switch weapons if the weapon you find is more powerful than the one you are carrying. That all seems self-evident. When you pick up the new weapon, you drop your current weapon, but be careful, sometimes the weapon you drop will explode. Each weapon has a different power level, plus your weapon won't run out of ammunition. The weapons you can use and their strength are as follows. Ranges from fists, with one unit, up to grenades for 100 units per shot. You also have phasers, laser pistols, electric rifles, and poofer guns. While you're sweeping the aliens from your planet's space station, those same aliens are after you and can destroy you. Injuries to your player are measured in units, or units per second of contact with an alien. So watch your health gauge in the lower left corner of your screen. You begin with 1,000 health units. The damage that injuries can cause range from 2 units per second in an attack by a critter up to 150 units when you get hit by a leaping alien. You can also jump into a door, which I do a lot. Attacked by tentacles, attacked by a roller baby, hit by a rolling alien, hit by a hit by spit or phlegm, they add helpfully in parentheses, hit by a grenade, and then, like I said, hit by a leaping alien. Strategy. Your primary mission is to locate and eliminate the aliens as quick as possible. Don't spend too much time searching for valuable objects. The aliens are clumsier and easier to kill at the lower levels of a space station. Save your best firepower for the scariest aliens, and remember that your biggest challenges await at the higher levels. In two-player games, try to join forces with the other player, and then split up to cover all the rooms of a space station quicker. During two-player games, avoid fights with the other player. A fight will only distract you from your mission. My memory is that this only happened uh, to a point. It was always sort of fun to occasionally accidentally shoot the person you were playing with. Be ever alert for the alien's varied means of attack. Shoot tentacles at the bottom of their swing. Use grenades to destroy aliens rolled into balls. Set the self-destruct on the harder space stations, numbers 4 and 8. You keep health damage, units lost, to a minimum, and receive a bonus of 100 points per alien destroyed. Concentrate on the easier bases where you can earn the 200-point health bonus when leaving a cleared space station. If the name of a level within the space station is in red, the level has more aliens for you to find and destroy. If the level name is in blue, you've cleared all the aliens from that level. Scores. You receive points for destroying aliens, picking up valuable hardware during your mission in each space station, and for finding and picking up health objects which increase your life. Killing aliens. Points range from 25 points for a pod up to 125 points for a tentacle. Weapons. 10 points for a phaser up to 500 points for a grenade. Valuable hardware, which they seem to define loosely. You get 50 points for a flask or a birder. Oh, sorry. That's your health points. 50 points for a flask and 50 points for a birder. The valuable hardware points range from 
250 points for a rope, up to 1,000 points for a clipboard. The all-important, vital to the future of the universe, clipboard. Alright. Okay, the thing that I thought might be a guitar, when I was looking at it on screen, looks like it was actually a screwdriver. The thing I thought was a, was a gas can was actually a transmitter. Hmm, interesting. And that is how you play Xenophobe. Wikipedia says that Xenophobe is one of the few arcade games made in the 80s to not have a demonstration of the gameplay. The arcade version had nine characters to choose from, three for each joystick. You had Mr. Embrace, Dr. Quack, and Colonel Poupon, Mr. Fogg, Colonel Truth, and, Double, and Dr. Utterbay. Mr. Ease, Dr. Zordiz, and Colonel Chicken. Humans and aliens alike make up playable characters. For instance, Dr. Quack has a duck's head. That's one of the ones that I remember vividly. Players are also color-coded. Left players' choices wear red shirts, middle players yellow, right players blue. But again, no relation to Star Trek. It was ported to the 2600, the 7800, the Atari ST, Commodore Amiga, Commodore 64, Lynx, Amstrad, CPCs, Sinclair, ZX Spectrum, and then NES. A port for the Atari 8-bit family of computers, similar to the 7800 version, was developed for Atari Corp. in 1989, but was not published. Atari published Xenophobe for its systems, the 7800 and XE versions, were developed by Blue Sky Software, and the Lynx version was developed by Epix, while Sunsoft ported it to the NES. The Commodore 64 port was done by Microplay. In 2004, Xenophobe was included in Midway's Arcade Treasures 2 for the PS2, Xbox, and Nintendo GameCube. 2005, Xenophobe was included in Midway Arcade Treasures Extended Play on the PSP. In 2012, it was included in Midway Arcade Origins for the PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360. In a capsule review of the Lynx version for S-Tart, Clayton Walnum commented, The graphics in some rooms are more detailed than in others and in general aren't as impressive as those in Electrocop, a similar game. Complicated controls take some digging used to. Les Ellis of Ray's Magazine also reviewed the game for the Atari Lynx, calling it an addictive game with excellent graphics, giving a score of 94%. Atari HQ put out a review that said, Man, this game was killer at the arcades. Like a far future version of Gauntlet, but with all the orcs, goblins, ghosts, etc. being replaced by a cornucopia of extraterrestrial commie pig dogs. Although the Atari version only has two players, not the three that the arcade version gives you, the game is essentially the same, with all the weapons, power-ups, grenades, random items to get, and all the varieties of aliens. Especially that tentacle thing that hangs down from the ceiling. Oh, he'll rule the day he showed up here. Oh, yes, he will, but I digress. Space stations have different floors to them. Some have three, some six, etc. The game is challenging enough to keep playing. When you get down to it, it's really hard for any two-player co-op games to be really bad. Graphically, the game is pretty good. Not as colorful as the arcade, and you can't pick your character, but most of the human touches, read the signs, are intact, and everything looks good. Musically, alas, not much, and there are about three sound effects in the whole game, but it's okay. 7 out of 10 for graphics, 3 for sound, 8 for gameplay, and overall a 7. Matthew Lippert wrote that review. So basically the consensus is pretty universal, I think, because uh, I certainly felt it, and I'm no expert. Um, it's not unusual with these games that are ported from really popular arcade games. The experience is not the same, but is the experience... The same enough? Well, after the break, xenophobe? Nope, we see lots of phobes. Seventeen-year-old Bill, what are you doing here? Well, I just wanted to play xenophobe. Gosh, older me. You're so darn handsome. Yes, Bill, I know. And you're right. Xenophobe is great. I can remember when I was you and used to play this at the GameStop. Yep, we sure did. We had a lot of fun. Well, let's play it, because I can already feel the time winds ripping me apart and the entirety of space and time crumbling around us, so I'm going to have to get back to my own time. Let's hurry up and play. Okay, 17-year-old me. Let's do it. That's some jaunty music right there. Alright, I'm beaming in, although I'm totally not, you know, infringing on any copyrights. Darn it, I didn't mean to throw my grenade. If you prematurely throw your... 
your grenade, guys. It does not make you any less of a man. Ha, take that, little weird scorpion thing. Waiting for that thing to hatch. That come out of its oyster shell or whatever that is. Come on, you know you want to. Ha, gotcha. Pick up the weird bloody knife thing. Got that. So, Xenophobe on the 7800, not the arcade version, obviously. I just picked up a thing that might have been a guitar. I'm not sure what that was supposed to be. But the level of detail is really, really good. I'm not going to wait for that thing to hatch out of its oyster thing. I got things to do, like smash into that door and fall down. Ooh, better gun. Haha. -ha. I got me a rifle. Haha. -ha. Walking, 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 walking. Ooh. Skull. Uh, a vast. A vast? Ah, uh, Yorick. I knew him well. Hey, don't shoot your laser snot at me, you slime stop. Slime snot. I can't talk. Walking, walking, walking. Take that. Take that. Ooh. Five and a quarter inch floppy disk. Uh-oh. I'm about to finish this level, I think. Here I go, totally not beaming out. This is totally not a Star Trek game. There's some jaunty music. Um, well that was lame. Nine Xenos killed. No bonus awards. I picked up lots of junk though. That's good, right? Headed to the next level. In my creepy spaceship thing. Alright, just beamed in standing on an alien thing. That was dumb. The transporter chief totally gonna get fired. Oh, ow. Ah, no. Go back. I want my rifle back. Hey, it moved. I punch him. Punch him. I punch you. I punch you. Haha. -ha. I think I'll go in the elevator. Alright. Waiting, waiting, waiting. Here it comes. Alright. Here we go. Uh, activate the elevator. I was on beta level. Now I'm on alpha level. Way better level. I think I'll go left. Got another skull. Don't know why. What's that? Alright, I picked those things up. Don't know what they were. Could have been a guitar and a bow and arrow. Not really sure. Ah! That's good shooting, ducks. Got a gas can. Hey! No sliming me in the butt. That sounds bad. Keep running into doors. Whoa! When they're rolling, you can't shoot them, apparently. Haha. -ha. Thought you could sneak up on me, didn't you? Oh, I didn't want to throw it. No fair sliming me from off-screen. Not cool. Coil of rope, I guess? I don't know what that is. I know where this guy's putting all this stuff. Hey, get off of me. Ooh, what's that thing? Haha, -ha, now I got my weird electric gun thing. Whoa, my lightning gun. Take that. Should I get on the elevator again? Oh, why not? Waiting, waiting, waiting. There we go. Back down to beta level. Giant missile. Trash can. Why did I pick up a trash can? 
Die already. Beam out again. Or not beam out. Alright. There, I beamed out again. Let's see how my how this level went. Ooh. Was it supposed to blow up? Oh well. No bonus awards. What? Killed 23 Xenos though. Recover lots of valuable hardware like a trash can. Alright, I don't argue. I just do what I'm told. And you should too. Back to you in the studio. Hey everyone, this is Michael, one of the hosts of the Atari XEGS Cart by Cart podcast. Do you like Atari? Of course you do. What about the 8-bit computer line? It was one of the best. Well, how about you consider joining Bill, David, Kieran, and myself as we review the cartridge-based games for Atari's 8-bit computer line. We also review budget games, which were mostly released only in the UK. But that's not all. We also dig up game history, share personal experiences, and perform questionable comedy. You'll get all of that and for free just by listening to us on either iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Player FM, or from our website at xegs8bit.com. That's xegs, the number 8, bit.com. And when you're done listening, please send us your hate mail, because we really need the feedback so we know someone is tuning in. So here's the thing about Xenophobe. To answer my own question, yeah. I think this experience is the same enough as the arcade version. It's not the arcade version, but what game is that you play at home on your Atari? I think it's fun. I think it's one I will keep playing. I have a good time with it. There's enough going on there that you have continuing challenges, and continuing exploration of what sort of strategy you can use. Um, no, you don't get to pitch your character. That is really disappointing, but that's life. That's the lesson for today's show, kids. Life is disappointing. But there's enough here that, that I'll keep playing it. And that's really all I asked from a video game. Alright, well, enough of that. It's story time, kids. It's story time on Atari Bites. Yes, it's story Story, story, story time! With Bill! Ah, crap. I forgot to give this week's story a title again. Talk amongst yourselves for a minute. Thanks to my Atari telephone modem, my computer can call other computers, and I can get information of practically anything. Look at this list. Acupuncture, adolescence, adoption, advice to the lovelorn. Everything is computerized these days. Aircraft insurance, airport delays, airline guide. You can use your Atari computer to check airline schedules, make reservations, make sure you're getting the lowest fares, even pay for your tickets. I'm not even halfway through the A's yet. Alabama Sports and News, Alaska Sports and News, annual report. Remember when every classroom had a turtle? Well, they still do. Turtles are symbols used in logo, a computer language schools are using to teach programming. By moving this Atari turtle around the screen, Billy is discovering for himself the basics of math and logic. Programming with Atari logo is not just fun. There's serious learning going on. <laughs> Look at that Atari turtle go. You ought to go hide your head. Hmm. Okay, this week's story is titled, To Go Where No One Has, But Not Boldly. The gentle hum of the transporter beam powering up, almost, but not quite, covered Commander Tom Aliki's annoying, annoyed huffing. Move, team, move, Tom Aliki said. We can't wait any longer. After a last check of their handheld phasers, Lieutenants Quacklin and Orburst followed Tom Aliki into the transporter device and particle-beamed themselves onto the space station. The hum of the transporter faded. The silence that followed was brief and soon replaced with a rapid-fire thud from the hallway. Ensign Kennedy Kendall burst into the empty room, heavy boots clanging on the deck. He looked around desperately for his ship's shipmates and saw no one. Ooh, crap, he said, his gill slits flittering nervously. The captain's going to be so mad. Kendall considered going back to his quarters. 
maybe fake, supernova flu. Or he could go to his duty station and say he was so involved cataloging interstellar tapeworms he forgot to meet the away team. Kendall didn't know what to do. His vestigial fishtail flapped indecisively. The transporter control screen still flashed the coordinates the team had gone to. He could just pop on over and join the team. Maybe they wouldn't even notice. If they do question it, he could just tell them the zoology lab had some new ideas about categorizing the slime output of the snotter pillars infesting the space station as compared to common snotter pillar populations found in the forests of Devon 4. By that point in the story, the away team would get bored and wander away, per the normal, and no one would question Kendall's tardiness. Kendall reached out to activate the transporter, but he hesitated. It's probably scary over there. The Snyder Pillar population on the space station was unlike any that humans had ever seen. They were super aggressive. Kendall didn't like aggressive creatures. Not since the pushy four-headed Norigati at the academy had declared Kendall was to be her mate. He was only saved by the fact that only three of the Norigans heads were into it. The fourth head distracted the other three so that Kendall could get away. Anyway, the Snyder Pillars on the station had already killed a lot of the fleet. Same with the pods, the roller babies, and the critters. Kendall studied creatures like under a microscope, or from behind some glass, maybe. He didn't go toe to vestigial appendage with them. He should really just go back to the lab. Pretend Space Outlook put the appointment on the wrong day on his calendar or something. Security Chief Loretta Bosch burst into the transporter room. Kendall, she said, and tossed him a phaser, which he almost dropped. The situation over there is becoming critical. The new modulations on the phasers are done. You should get two, maybe three more shots with it. Get going. Aye, sir, Kendall said, barely audible. Bosch nodded and somehow burst out of the room. Kendall looked at the transporter readout again. A trembling hand made its way to the send button, and Kendall was on his way. Kendall found himself in a cool, dimly lit secondary ventilation chamber, the station's backup climate control area. The station was deadly quiet. No, that's not quite true. In the distance, Kendall could hear weapons fire, mostly phasers, but some electric rifles and poofer guns, too. Kendall looked down at his phaser. His hand was a little sweaty, so he switched the gun to his other hand, but that felt even weirder, so he switched back. Kendall took a couple steps, then paused to check the power pack on the phaser. Yep, fully charged. Kendall heard Tom Aliki shouting in the distance. Then a grenade blast shook the station. Kendall set the phaser on Kendall set the phaser on maximum and didn't go anywhere. Instead, Kendall sat down right there on the floor amongst the dust bunnies that probably had more backbone than he did. I'm a Space Force officer, Kendall thought. I'm not a coward. So why couldn't he fight? What good is a Space Force officer who is all about space? Between the stars, in the lab, and the space between himself and others, but couldn't stomach the force part of the job. Kendall wiped away a treacherous tear, felt a bit more sorry for himself than was the norm, and in the distance, laser weapons fire mocked him. Wait, what was that about stomaching stuff? Kendall looked around, as if thoughts were bombarding him from outside like a gnat buzzing around. Stomachs. Stomach lining. The creatures infesting the station had stomachs and extremely high body temperatures. Kendall started frantically patting his uniform pockets, grateful to finally have space clothes that actually have pockets. He grinned self-consciously when he found what he was looking for. He held up the vial and squinted at its contents. Yep, there they were. Kendall went to the climate control panel and turned the heat way down. He waited a few minutes, then slowly, cautiously crept to the ventilation room's door. He first checked that the hallway was clear, then emptied the contents of his vial into the hallway. Kendall's idea was by dropping the air temperature, the human's body temperatures would drop, but the temperatures of the creatures marauding through the space station would not because of the unusual genetic makeup Kendall himself had helped define. Space Tapeworms Living Space Tapeworms By nature, tapeworms are attracted to warm organisms. Kendall hoped that they would ignore the humans, who were now very cold, and infest the invaders, who were still warm. The genetic in incompatibility of the two would kill the invading creatures without firing a shot. Well, without firing another shot. The laser fire continued, though, for an agonizing amount of time. Kendall got a bit sleepy from boredom and cold. A roller baby rolled through the door before bumping Kendall's boot and coming to a stop. At first, Kendall sleepily pulled his foot away before some aspect of his Space Force training forced him to consciousness and then summoned all that training to reach out and squash the roller baby under his boot. Then he cursed. Ah! 
he said. I wanted to see if the tapeworm would do it. Damn it. Another fail. But then, the laser fighting abruptly stopped. There was a slightly audible quick exchange between the other Space Force officers. Most of it was indecipherable except for Tom Maliki declaring, All clear. I guess it worked, Kendall whispered, and was pleased to find the sound didn't scare him. So he said it a bit louder. Had he just saved the space station? Crap, I gotta get out of here. Kendall scrambled to his feet and smacked the transporter's send button. Back on the Space Force cruiser, he took his seat in the lab and prepared to resume his same old anonymous life. He'd always know what happened, even if no one else did. And that was enough for him. And that's our show. My thanks to Kevin McLeod and Incompetech.com for Creative Commons' use of his songs, Reformat, Pinball Spring, and Take a Chance. Thanks to Mike Mann for his Mad Mike Hughes update theme. Thanks to Sean Courtney for the Storytime theme. Show notes are available at ataribytes.libson.com, along with episodes, social media, all sorts of stuff. You can email the show at ataribytes2016 at gmail.com. Like the show on our Facebook page. Follow the show on Twitter at ataribytes. A-T-A-R-I-B-Y-T-E-S or follow me personally at Carnival of Glee. And of course, there's weirdness occasionally on Instagram as well. The Atari Bytes page over there. And don't forget to give us a call at 563-265-1978. Leave us a voicemail and we'll play it on the show. Listen to Atari Bytes wherever fine podcasts are sold, distributed, or foisted upon you like so many flyers from politicians in an election year. But remember to roller, baby, on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Watch out for poofer duns. Also, support the show financially on our Patreon page, Atari Bytes, B-Y-T-E-S. And send me your ideas for things you might like to see in an Atari Bytes merchandise store. There's one already, Atari Bytes, the Atari Bytes store on Zazzle.com, A-B underscore pod underscore store. But I'm looking for new ideas for things to put in there. And if you have time, check out my other podcast. It's a podcast, Charlie Brown. New episodes drop on the 15th of every month and are jam-packed with anything you ever wondered about your favorite comic strip characters. Snoopy, Charlie Brown, all of them. The comic strip, the TV shows, the movies, the merchandise, the mind of Charles Schultz himself, the ancillary stuff that was inspired by the Peanuts universe. We talked about all of it over there on the podcast. So check it out, tell your friends and family who love Peanuts, and you know that you know someone who does, direct them to this podcast. It's a podcast, Charlie Brown, 15th of every month. Next time on Atari Bytes, Dragster. So until next time, go play some old games. They've missed you. Laser weapons fire mock laser.